Hi, this is Dr. Michael J. Christensen, author of C.S. Lewis on Scripture, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. And I, who was approaching now the end of all man's yearning, strained with all the force in me to raise my burning longing high. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 32. Jack's Bookshelf. Dante Alighieri. After Hours with Dr. Jason Baxter. (laughs) Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. Today we begin a new series on the podcast, Jack's Bookshelf. And we're planning to do this series now every season. And in these episodes, we'll be looking at the books and the authors, which had a profound impact on Lewis. Because if you want to understand the man it's really helpful to know what he read. And the quotation about longing at the beginning of this episode came from The Divine Comedy, a work written by Dante Alighieri, who is going to be the first author in our series. And in today's episode, we're going to look at who this man was and the works that he wrote, particularly focusing on his magnum opus, The Divine Comedy. And in The Divine Comedy, Dante is taken to hell, purgatory, and heaven, guided on his way by different historical figures. And our guide through this episode will be returning guest to Pints for Jack, Dr. Jason Baxter. Dr. Jason Baxter has taught at Wyoming Catholic College for 12 years and has recently moved to Notre Dame, where he is teaching great books. His primary research interests include medieval and Renaissance ideas of beauty, the long-lived legacy of Platonic thought, and the poetry of Dante. He has written five books, including a book which we discussed back in Season 5, Episode 55, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. And Dr. Baxter also wrote a book which we're going to be discussing today, A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. Dr. Jason Baxter, welcome back to Pints with Jack. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this since October. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Uh, It was actually really wonderful to hear your name repeatedly mentioned on one of my favorite podcasts, the Literary Life podcast. Yes. Uh, And each of the hosts were just raving about your book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. And so I just sent them each a message saying, here's his email. I think you guys should talk. That's great. Thank you. You're very welcome. It was just so great to see them geeking out in the same way I did when I first read the book. Uh, But what have you been up to since you were last on the show? I mentioned in the intro that you've recently changed jobs. Yes, uh, we moved from the Mountain West to the Midwest. We went through a winter. Uh, We had a baby. I started a new job. I've been translating Dante's comedy and writing a commentary on it, but other than that, not much. (laughs) So overachieving still. That's that's good to see. Well, earlier this week, I took my brother-in-law, Andrew, beer shopping. And since the weather here in La Crosse at the moment is gorgeous, I am enjoying one of my favorites, a nice Hefeweizen. Beer is keto, right? Yes. Beer is keto. Yeah, yeah beer is ketogenic and <laughs> ketogenic friendly. No, just teasing. Um, alas, I, th- I think maybe that's uh, you know, the worst thing uh, against the, uh, the ketogenic diet. But I'm, I'm kind of I'm doing – last night I had a wonderful uh, white – Sicilian wine mm. to uh, to ring in the spring, kind of a, a white wine uh, blend by Dona Fugata, and I'm I'm still I'm still happy about it. I haven't stopped smiling even in my sleep. <laughs> well, we will cheers then to the memory of your glass of wine. Cheers. Cheers. I think it's quite possible that some of our listeners might not know who Dante is, 
and to give myself as an example, my own introduction to him wasn't until I was 21 and at university. But it wasn't in a literature course. It was from a horror movie. I was a member of the Campus Movie Society, and I saw Hannibal, uh, the movie starring Sir Anthony Hopkins, the sequel to Silence of the Lambs. And in the film, there's a scene at an opera and this beautiful piece of music called Vide Cormeum, See My Heart. And afterwards, I discovered that it was an adaptation of La Vita Nuova by Dante. So that was my profound introduction to Dante. Uh, but Dr. Baxter, what was yours? Well, I didn't meet Dante until university either, when I was taking a, a big kind of survey course, and I wasn't very impressed with him. Um, he felt way too medieval to me. <laughs> I, I don't think I would have articulated it in that way. But um, And I wasn't a, a Catholic at the time. And so I didn't have any kind of uh, cultural baggage or predisposition that I had to like him. right? Mm. And so I just thought that I don't know who this guy is, but I think he's overrated. I think I just I got lost in all the details. I wasn't exactly sure who he was talking with or where he was going or what these places were. It was just uh, it just you know a, a maddeningly maddening sort of maze of of details, which really confused me. Or maybe you know maybe not unlike one of the uh, the so called labyrinth in these French Gothic cathedrals, like in Chartres, right? I mean Dante's poem is kind of like that. You have to somehow, some way, get to the center of these things, and it's not it's not easy to do. But yeah, so my first impression was not positive. In fact, my second one, my, the second time I read it, um, I I think I made you know maybe upgraded Dante from a C minus writer to a to a B minus <laughs> writer because I I enjoyed a couple of moments. But you know, honestly, it wasn't until I had reread him for a third or fourth time, and now in graduate school, that I began to appreciate why this why this poetry has has been enduring as it has been. Mm. I personally started reading Dante and the Divine Comedy specifically uh, well over a decade and a half after I'd finished university in an effort to plug the holes in my education, in all the stuff I didn't get taught. Uh, and I'll admit, parts of it were a bit of a slog. And uh, a little bit later, we'll talk about the comedy and how to read Dante and the help that's out there. But before we get to that, who was Dante Alighieri? Yeah, he was a Florentine from a kind of a busted aristocratic family. So proud of his title, but uh, didn't have the um, didn't have access to the oceans of wealth. So he had some kind of aristocratic privileges, like has some sort of background in uh, in Latin and classical learning, and thus it was able to spend his youth doing fun aristocratic things like writing lyric poetry, <laughs> which was all the rage in Italy modeling themselves on the French troubadour poets, even though it had taken on a, a peculiar sort of flavor um, in Italy. So love lyric, this kind of strange thing which your beloved, our beloved Lewis writes about in, uh, in his allegory of love, this kind of strange sort of use of this, these, these, these courtly customs of uh, of the beloved lady who's married to someone else, Dante sort of takes this whole genre and he writes within it. He uses some of these these similar, uh, you know, uh, tropes and schemes and uh, different sort of topoi and so forth. But he, he's, even as a young man, seemingly has this kind of desire to take the popular genre and to stretch it in this vertical way to find some type of philosophical or theological significance about it. But for whatever reason, what he's the work, literary work he's doing in his twenties, 
in his 30s, he turns to a career in politics. And Florence is a kind of, um, at this point, is a rambunctious, self-governing, democratic city. But um, maybe like all democracies, it's kind of you know reinventing itself on almost an annual basis. And there's lots of there's lots of turnover. There's lots of you know quarreling. There's lots of uh, uh, yeah, lots of sort of changes in laws. Um, and at one point, Dante says, "You don't even keep the law in June. You don't even respect the laws you made in October." <laughs> um, but so Dante gets involved in this democratic operation, and on a moment when he's being sent as an ambassador down to Rome, receives news that the opposing party to his has exiled him and a number of other sort of prominent figures from Florence, from life. And that upon pain of death, he can never return home to Florence. And he never does. He spends the rest of his, his life um, at first teaming up with other angry expats from Florence to see if that they can build an army strong enough to force their way back in. And so he does this kind of like divisive uh, two-party uh, political thing for a while. After which he gets tired of it. And as he puts it himself, I became a party unto myself. And seemingly it's right around this time that he starts to write different types of works. He starts to write a more philosophical work in which he, he uses his own poetry to comment on it called The Convivio or The Banquet. Then he writes a book called On Vernacular Eloquence in which he tries to make a case for why an Italian language, um, which didn't have the prestige then that it does now, but why an ordinary, you know, street language, the the language of of uh, of housewives and kids and cursing, could actually be used for an elevated uh, poetic project, and then sometime around 1306 starts to write the comedy, starts to write the Inferno, dies in 1321, just a couple years after he had finished Paradiso. But even in his own life, his 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 comedy was so admired that he becomes something of a celebrity, um, but never returned home to Florence. Mm. What was his love life like? Because I think one of the first things I ever knew about Dante was that he had the mad hots for a girl called Beatrice. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I don't know if if you're going to get a Netflix contract off of this description, but he he meets this girl called Beatrice. He falls what we now call platonically in love with her. She dies um, when he's fairly young. Um, and he marries someone else about whom we hardly know anything, has a couple of kids, but Beatrice yet remains this type of, uh, uh, this inspirational figure, the, the sort of, the lady of his imagination, which is, I think in our contemporary democratic society is really weird and disturbing <laughs> that Dante continues to write poetry about his dead girlfriend, even after he's been married for, you know, and had kids with, you know. I don't think most wives would be tolerant of such activities these days. Probably not. But it, it still falls under this kind of the strange genre of courtly love, the same one that, that Lewis had tried to rehabilitate in his allegory of love. Like it's so bizarre and shocking that we start reading about it and it just seems adulterous and strange, even if it's not necessarily, sometimes there is sort of discussion of sexual passion, but, but not all the time. Even if it's what we now call, you know, platonic love, it's still so strange to us that we just want to put it down. But anyway, that's the those are the conventions in the world in which Dante's writing in, and his Beatrice becomes well. He just loves to play on this name. She's the blessed one. She's the Beatrice, and um, Dante wants to try to make of her 
what the Franciscans had done for St. Francis in the previous century. That she's kind of, they, you know, Francis was being called an alter Christus, a second Christ, right? Because of his, his kind of like perfect literal gospel obedience, according to this, you know, these Franciscan writers, had enabled him to grow so close to Christ that in his very flesh, he was beginning to illuminate something of the sanctity of the Lord himself. You know, hence to Francis. Dante wanted to say something about that, something what had been said about Francis, about Beatrice. And thus, not only conforming to the strange rules of this genre of love lyric, but also transforming them and stretching them in this kind of spiritual transcendent direction. Beatrice was so beautiful, he says in one of his poems, that if she walked by, you would either be hardened in your heart and your sin or forced to repent. Wow. Like Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think Matt would appreciate that. That probably should be a Taylor Swift lyric. But you've mentioned some of his different works. So would you mind just giving us a sketch of the sort of thing that he was writing? Sure. Yeah, so he writes these love lyrics, this like scattered collection of love lyrics. Um, and seemingly, I mean, writes them like maybe like a singer-songwriter would now. He has a moment of inspiration. He writes it. He overhears some people talking in the streets about, uh, um, you know, saying, who's Beatrice again? And he goes home and rage and says, how dare they not know who she is? I'm going to write <laughs> such a perfect poem that everyone will recognize her true worthiness. Or there are other poems um, in which he writes about the experience of falling in love and begin the dizzying, vertiginous experience of falling in love. Or he writes about the pain of uh, of being ignored when you are in love and Basically, sort of explores, I don't know, maybe like sort of like what Bach does for the for the early piano and his well-tempered clavier, right? And all these different keys and with the preludes and fugues, Dante sort of does for every possible way you could think or talk about love. But seeming there's these kind of like this scattered corpus of poetry. That's kind of phase one for Dante. In phase two, he gathers together some of his best hits in the Vita Nuova. And he makes them seem like they all form this narrative arc of his own kind of spiritual transformation, his own sort of passing through the, the, the passion of Beatrice, the death of Beatrice and the sort of spiritual consequences of, of that. And he sort of gathers them together and acts like these, this is where this all was going you know, forever, this kind, of, this kind of clean trajectory, almost as if Beatrice is, you know, this prophetic figure who has called Dante out of his spiritual somnolence and the ordinary mediocrity of his life, and thus forces him to engage these deeper and higher level of themes. That's the Vita Nuova. And at the end of the Vita Nuova, he says something absolutely incredible. He says that he, has this, he had this vision in which his soul ascended up to heaven into the Empyrean and saw Beatrice in her full glory. And he was going to write a poem about that but it would take him some years to study before he could produce it. He's almost like this, you know, like a celebrity artist who dropping the successful album announces that he or she will go into the desert of Utah for three years in silence in order to write the next song, right? Dante says, I, I'm going to have to study for several years if the Lord grants me strength. I'll write what no man has ever said about any woman. And we don't know what that thing would have been, because then he goes into politics, he experiences this exile, and seemingly his sort of taste for what he felt was literary pressing changed. And so he starts to work on this piece, this, this longish work called the Convivio. 
in which yet again he gathers together some of his select poems, some from the Vita Nuova, but some others from his you know, kind of random corpus. And he starts writing this philosophical treatise. Yeah, so in the Convivio, he kind of pushes love lyric under the bus and um, makes himself out to be, you know, people used to, you know, think that I was sort of dallying in these youthful love lyrics, like a, some kind of singer, singer songwriter. But the reality is I've always been a philosopher. I've always been a theologian. And he writes this learned commentary in which he's trying to make his audience see, I don't believe that what he's doing now in the Italian, in the Italian vernacular, is this kind of, I don't know, something almost like a kind of linguistic Eucharist, like a linguistic communion in which by feeding on these poems and understanding them correctly, this will cause their hearts to catch fire with what he calls ardore, a burning sensation, and they will want to be virtuous and they will want to address themselves, he's writing this post-exile, to this state of events in which basically Italy has got, has got to get better or it's about to completely uh, crumble. So he always has some kind of you know, interesting, strong feelings about his poetry and always sees in some capacity that his, his poetry has this kind of salvific quality, if it could just be understood well. But he's also this kind of experimental writer who keeps changing his mind about exactly what this poetry does or how it does it. This is all pre-comedy. Then he writes this thing called On Vernacular Eloquence, which is in Latin, maybe ironically, <laughs> paradoxically, a Latin treatise about how vernacular languages are more beautiful than in Latin. And it's a kind of prejudice, which I think is hard for us to understand now. I mean, we're so democratic in our age, right? Um, but maybe the way that sort of like in the 1940s, someone in a prep school in the UK who, who had spoken the sort of proper RP would have felt about someone with, uh, you know, with a, um, an acne accent, right? Or something like that. Or maybe the way that maybe uh, someone in Boston now feels about someone from Alabama, right? But that sort of a more intense and more extreme, Latin is the learned language, it's the, it's the language of medicine, it's the language of law, it's the language of literature, it's the language of theology, it's the language of philosophy, it's precise. It has a subjunctive. It can, you know, it can do heavy lifting and it has this vocabulary, right? Why on earth would you speak in, you know, this kind of country bumpkin language of the streets? So Dante writes this type, this justification, which he is starting to grow rather bold, saying, not only can, under the right conditions, can a great poet make the vernacular as elegant as, as Latin, but in fact, there's a secret property to the vernacular language by which the vernacular poet can surpass even Virgil, even, even the ancients. So you can kind of see all this kind of brewing. That's a good metaphor for this show. Right. Until finally he turns to the comedy and, of course, is told right there at the beginning by Virgil, that Beatrice has commissioned this whole trip. But it's also a very political poem, which captures some of these elements of the convivio. It's written in Italian, and it's meant to have a type of embodied, visceral, moving aspect because it's written in the language of the street. And so I think, again, it's, it's one of the funny things about Dante, Dante's poem becoming a classic is that we kind of come to it with this, um, what Lewis might call kind of like a hushed, hushed 
voices and stained glass windows, right? As if this is the sort of thing that you ought to like. Yeah. So we approach it as if it were a school text. But in his day, I think to see these types of things being dragged into the vernacular would have been kind of a shocking, maybe not shock art, but would have been a kind of avant-garde, bold thing. You know, maybe like the most sort of um, like an Aronofsky film or something like that. Really? Can you do that on, on the screen? I think it would have had that type of um, visceral, somatic surprise and shock to it. That in something, these things, shouldn't these things remain in Latin? But in Dante, they break into the language that you that you speak to your children in, as opposed to you know that you speak at university in the learned language, and at church, and at church. <laughs> Why is it called the comedy? Because I will say it is very light on not not jokes. Yeah, I'm always trying to look for funny moments in the comedy, and always kind of cross examining them and then disqualifying them. Like, well, <laughs> maybe that's not a joke. I used to think that this moment in Purgatorio where he meets his old drinking buddy was like one of those moments on like, you know, like a Monday, Monday morning where you see the, the fellows you were hanging out with on the weekend and everyone gives each other this sort of sly smiles having recovered from, you know, from what happened. Um, and I always thought it's like that except in the afterlife. But on reevaluation, I think Dante might even be being morally serious there. Um, yes, yeah, not so funny. But it's a comedy in the sense that of in, co- in terms of medieval genre theory, Virgil's work in the comedy is called an alta tragedia, a high tragedy, in that he adopted a style which was meant not just down to the word, but down to the syllable to be perfect in every possible way. It, it was sort of left behind you know, ordinary street speech. And cleansed language. Think of sort of like reading something like Milton. If you just walked around and spoke like Milton all the time or Dryden or something like that, right? Or, or Spencer. Here's cleansed speech. You know, not speaking in this kind of ordinary garbagey way, the way, the way in which we ordinarily talk. So I think Dante thinks that Virgil wrote in this, what he calls this tragic high style. And thus it's rather incredible that he calls what he's doing this comic style because he wants to beat Virgil. But he also wants to beat him in this, in this really unusual way of creating a poem which is more encyclopedic, more inclusive, basically has all the high elements of Virgil. I mean, Dante does go up through the planetary spheres all the way up to the, the so-called Empyrean where he has a vision of God. Spoiler alert, right? But at the same time, he curses in the poem. There's mud. And there's blood. And there's fights and there's screams and there's and there there are some souls who are so enraged that when they speak they can't even articulate any known language. So Dante gives this sort of encompassing vision, and I think that's probably what what he means by a comedy. Is that is is this kind of like world encompassing vision? It's not just us. It's not just us sort of at our linguistic and rational best, but it's us with all the all the garbage and ordinariness of our lives, all the, um, all the things that we drag with us, even in the midst uh, we have these kind of high, quote-unquote, tragic desires. Hmm. So in the Divine Comedy, Dante begins in a very similar position to Ransom. He's in the middle of his life, and he is in a dark wood wandering. Hmm. <laughs> so Dante then begins this journey. He passes through limbo, he passes through the inferno, hell, purgatory, heaven. 
what is it he's actually trying to do with this story? Is it just one big morality tale? Does he have something else in mind? Or even does he have many other things in mind as he is writing this book? I think in a way it's, it's you know, Dante putting together all these broken bits of his past and that sort of realizing that these, this political divisiveness, um, the avarice of the world. I mean, Dante sort of gets like a, you know, like a behind the scenes look at how political decisions, real political decisions are made, right? You know, the, the, um, the decisions on the golf course or in the back room kind of thing, right? And he's just sort of disgusted by this, this world of, of fraudulence and violence and treachery, as well as just the surface sense of incontinence, right? Our lust, our, our drunkenness, our gluttonous, our, um, our feasting while other people are starving. Um, just, he, he just gets a vision of this thing and I think is disgusted by it. And basically wants to write a type of poem in which he can save the world by means of saving himself. But what that actually means to, not just to repent, but to detach, I always love to put it this way, right? To get the fingers off the throat of the world and to cease from these habitual dispositions towards towards basically finding finding our earthly happiness in created goods such that we grab them and hold on to them so tight that we kill them i think dante writes up basically his 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 apocalyptic behind the scenes afterworld journey sort of under, unfolds in those stages in which he first of all has to encounter the power of god um who in his justice he says in Inferno 3, maybe somewhat controversially these days, has created this place for those who refused to be creatures. And Dante sort of gives this kind of powerful, you know, sometimes terrifying vision as this kind of an incredible, you know, incredible act of vigilance and waking up. In some sense, you have to see how bad it gets, how, um, how much sludge <laughs> is, you know, is all the way down the human heart. And then Having converted from that, he has this literal moment at the very end of Inferno of 34, which he crosses over the center of the earth and the gravitational field flips. He was going down and now he's going back up, but has this kind of disorienting moment which he has his conversion. He flips. Now he's going a different direction and everything is different. And he comes out this rocky fissure and finds that he's more or less in Antarctica. And it's this huge mountain which extends above the cloud line and it's called Purgatory. And it's a place where people who have said, oh, Lord, I have sinned and I, you know, and I have failed you, have to then actually do the hard work of not just sort of mentally acknowledging a mistake, a conversion, but to actually committing to um, a type of character and habit in which they dwell close to the Lord in their in presence. And for Dante in the medieval imagination, the monastic imagination, this involves some spiritual disciplines. This involves fasting. This involves chanting. This involves, you know, as a team, chanting the liturgy of the hours and doing all these types of liturgical practices. It involves some types of penances, like carrying huge stones, things that as, as moderns we're offended by, unless we're doing them for athletics. <laughs> if Nike makes a commercial in which you know, a tough defensive end for the NFL is getting hit in the in the guts with a medicine ball. We think that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but we don't really like to do those things for spiritual reasons. But in any case, the Middle Ages are different. They they have all these kind of like incredible penances, which they voluntarily submit to as they're singing, as they're contemplating scripture, as they're contemplating classical literature, in order to get their head knowledge into their nerves and pulses of their body. So they don't just say things, but actually love it when it's good. And their stomach churns when they think about their old failures. Their stomach, it, right, they're, they're nauseated by, by injustice. They don't turn a blind eye to it anymore. This is purgatory. When Dante gets through all this, I don't know if your, your listeners can imagine this, but he's clean and happy and light. And Virgil even tells him, hey, this is crazy, but you don't need my help anymore. Anything that you want to do, anything that you have a feeling to do is now good. <laughs> and everything that is good, you will want to do. Because you've re-entered what the medievals called the original state of justice. The various faculties of your soul have been reharmonized, and now you can trust your feelings. I have teenagers. They came and asked me, Daddy, what do you think I should do? I wouldn't say to them, I don't know, just trust your feelings, right? <laughs> no. But Dante reachieves that state of original justice in which he can Virgil can say that to him. And then he sees Beatrice, and there's a very dramatic uh, moment of their reunion, which is not what you expect. Um, and once he's undergone a final painful scourging from Beatrice uh, for having abandoned her in his youth, very interesting. He begins to sort of float up into heaven because his, his soul is now so light and fiery, it wants to seek out those types of bodies which are most akin to it. And this is when Dante goes, and then Dante creates what we dislike the most as modern readers and what, the, what he thought was his greatest achievement, his imaginative portrayal of what heavenly bliss could feel like and how electrically dynamic it is, right? How sort of this like, you know, like in a particle accelerator, when two protons smash into each other and for like, you know, a millionth of a second, there's this kind of like miasma of pure energy. Dante does that in Paradiso, but it's spiritual joy and not just like, you know, potential energy. Hmm. Well, we'll talk about Dante's influence on Lewis in a little bit, but what were Dante's influences? Because I've seen lots of people take the Divine Comedy and apply different frameworks to it, like the three spiritual stages purgative, illuminative, and unitive. And I remember watching a presentation by, well, then Father Baron, now Bishop Robert Baron. It was called Seven Deadly Sins, Seven Lively Virtues. And he went through the inferno and was constantly referring to St. Thomas Aquinas. So, so what were Dante's key influences? What's shaping this? Uh, you said that he needed to study if he was going to produce this work. So what did he read? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is this is something that scholars spend their whole life on. They just delight on these types of um, neurotically tiny details. <laughs> but exactly what he knew at that moment is an even more interesting question, right? I mean, at that moment, he might. I mean, he might not have known the, some of these authors that later kind of give the the comedy its famously muscular philosophical dimensions. But he knows at least a good bit of Aquinas. Um, maybe Aquinas' commentaries on Aristotle. He knows a huge amount of Aristotle and he knows it pretty well. He knows at least some Bonaventure, maybe Bonaventure's Life of Francis. I'm going to go ahead and, and then, you know, Bonaventure's um, uh, Journey of the Mind into God. He knows Virgil really well, 
even though he reads them, reads Virgil in a peculiarly medieval way, I think, which is not how we would read it in a modern classics department. He knows the Bible really well, but yet again, not how we would read the Bible, sort of, you know, post German scholarship in the 19th century taught us to read it. He reads it very allegorical. He reads it very, uh, you know, so-called tropological, right? He reads it in terms of morality, but he also reads it looking for mystical senses. And he also reads it through the lens of the liturgy. So there are tons and tons of Bible quotations in there, but a lot of them probably get to him by means of, of liturgical practices. Um, he knows some of the he knows some of the text of the church, some of the, the great sort of liturgical hymns, and then he knows Boethius, and he knows Boethius absolutely cold. He might have read. He says that he read Boethius after Beatrice died because it's the consolation of philosophy. And he read it for consolation after the death of Beatrice. So he seemingly knows Boethius really, really well and is a longtime companion. But in addition to these, um, well, we could go on, but we could probably add um, Pseudo Dionysius the Areopagite, the mystical theologian, mystical uh, sixth century Byzantine theologian. Um, he knows him. He mentions at least you know 30 or 40 more theologians in Paradiso, like Richard of St. Victor, Hugh of St. Victor. But to what extent he knew those guys or, or, or what text, that's a harder thing to do. Um, but yeah, at least Pseudo-Dionysius, Boethius. And then he probably, well, he at least knows of Augustine's Confessions. He mentions it by name in the Convivio, but, it, I, but how well he studied it is, is hard to know. But he's got access to all these different types of text, maybe in addition to um, into other uh, literary texts like Ovid, Statius, Luke, and these classics. But there might also be some some really interesting other medieval texts that he knows, some stuff by Anselm or something like that. Well, my next question, I will admit, is this is far too broad, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is it that makes the comedy such an important and influential work? I like these types of questions. I think that Dante, maybe like a lot of... Um, other medieval artists and painters, maybe especially Franciscans, was particularly interested in trying to convert head knowledge into heart knowledge. He was trying to get um, doctrinal beliefs, which, you know, I think in an age of Christendom, in an age which Christianity is not just the dominant religion, but in some parts of, of Europe, the, any alternative is unthinkable. He's trying to get these sort of ages in which everyone could enunciate the correct opinions such that the sort of felt in the felt in the fingers felt in the felt in the nerves felt in the pulses i think that's dante's sort of particular genius and that a lot of a lot of his his choices of how to structure the architecture of the afterlife are not novel they're not original he's either borrowing them from classical philosophy um, as commented upon by aquinas in terms of sort of his his moral philosophy that like why is hell divided into three major regions? Well, that's you know that's obvious for a medieval reader, right? It's divided into the realm of the incontinent, the violent, and the fraudulent. That just comes from Aristotle's commented on by Aquinas. So Dante doesn't invent that. But what he does do is he imag imagines it so concretely, so vividly. And then by taking people from his own era as well as history, as well as from mythology, as well as from literature, and populating these these particular domains with these individual peoples who have their, their own particular stories, Dante makes this um, memorable and, well, indeed, unforgettable 
but in its particularity. So it goes from this sort of abstract exercise of how many deadly sins are there? You know, sort of this kind of like Sunday school exercise of you know, medieval Christendom and turns into something which elicits deeply felt visceral effective responses. And so I think for Dante, I mean, the hope is really to produce a sense of a sense of nausea or a spiritual nausea of sort of going through the hell and seeing wrecked humanity in its insolence, in its ignorant insolence and its persistence, its refusal to be, uh, its refusal to want to be a creature, right? If God made this world and I can't be the God of it, then um, then I'd rather be damned than his servant. And Dante makes this in, in through some of the, the rebellious gestures of, of, of some of the, the, the souls in hell makes it kind of, you know, sickeningly, uh, creates a sickening pathos. But in the meantime, he creates a sense of, of, of true hope and dedication and persistence and kind of humble love in the midst of his, his souls of purgatory. And then finally, I think he thought he was, he was most proud of what he did in Paradiso. I think he thought that he managed to create a place in which it felt so ebullient and optimistic and um, benevolently packed with with love, as sort of superabundance of joy in his paradiso. Um, so I think I think I think that's why it's so memorable is that people have responded through the ages to how to how concrete he's made it. That he's dragged something, and th- this is very much Lewis too, isn't it? Right, Lewis at some point says that he he was hoping to use fairy tale fairy tales to save Christianity from that strange kind of like sterilized medical feeling it had of cold stained glass windows and lessons you had to memorize and something which felt lived. I think, uh, I guess we're sort of anticipating a later part of the conversation, but I think that's, that's Dante's mastery is that is it's, he's, he's a poet of the particular. And as I keep saying, he's a poet of the nerves and the pulses and the heartbeat sort of drags it down from the head and into the body such that we have these visceral responses of to these tragedies of sin or these repentance, these moments of repentance and, and, and true and true dedication to living from the inside out. Hmm. In past years, I've done the Bible in a year and I'm currently doing the catechism in a year. But actually, even before this interview was, was in the schedule, I decided that 2024 was going to be the Divine Comedy in a year. And I did try reading it before, back when I lived in Seattle, and I got into a couple of cantos into Paradiso and then just kind of dropped it. Um, but I did find it more generally quite heavy going at times. And there were just so many layers of illusion. There's political, biblical, uh, classical, historical, just so much stuff in there. Or put another way, in 2024, I'm going to need some help. And fortunately, you have written a book called A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. So I have flicked through it. But uh, would you mind just telling me and telling the readers who might follow me in this year-long journey through heaven and hell and purgatory, uh, what kind of help do you provide in that book? Yes. I Well, first of all, I think um, what I was most proud of, I thought would be the most useful to, um, to future readers, was an introduction to the comedy as a whole. And then an individual introductions to introduction, to, sorry, individual introductions to Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. So exactly what the, what Dante calls them canticles, exactly what to sort of expect in these canticles. 
So I think those are probably, to my mind, the the most helpful bits. But then I also have have individual readings. Part of the trick with Dante is not just to historically identify who he's talking to, sort of a historical question. Two, there's a moral, philosophical, or moral theology question of what realm of the afterlife is he in, and how did the medievals arrive at that at, at that classification? What were the characteristics of this particular virtue or vice? That's sort of a third realm, or a second realm rather. But then there's this third realm, in which Dante's poetry manages to create characters who are oftentimes unaware of why they're there, or are unable to assess their own lives. And thus, they're oftentimes very unreliable narrators of their own experiences and put on display some of the very vicious tendencies which landed them there. And so they're kind of they're unreliable narrators. So I think that's the tricky, one of the many tricky things of, of reading Dante's comedy is that, first of all, you're just trying to figure out who these people are. Secondly, you're trying to figure out the gigantic architecture of the poem. But thirdly, you're trying to figure out why Dante has these particular responses to these particular people and what and to what extent they're trustworthy narrators of their own experiences. So I think I think the book try to takes both the, the historical, the moral philosophical, moral theological, as well as the particularly poetic, you know, with a, maybe a sensitivity to this dramatic irony and can frame that out so that we can see you know, see how Dante's both setting expectations, but then, uh, but then surpassing them. I can give a great, I get it. My favorite example probably would be uh, Ulysses in Inferno 26. And Ulysses is this heroic character who was, you know, greatly loved in the romantic period. Um, Tennyson writes poems about Ulysses. Ulysses writes about his life as if it were a terrible tragedy. Whereas I think Dante both admired him and also condemned him simultaneously because Dante had access to two different literary traditions. On the one hand, he had the Greek philosophical tradition, which read Ulysses as a philosophical hero. On the other hand, he had the Roman literary tradition, which read Ulysses as the great con artist, the great sort of like evil consultant for, uh, for security firms, <laughs> private security <laughs> firms in, in, warring, in warring countries. And then Dante magically is able to combine these two figures and gives us this richly complex character, as rich as what Homer himself had created, even though Dante wasn't reading Homer, who both has this philosophical drive, but because he accustomed himself to, these, uh, uh, to this vicious lifestyle, was unable to act upon his own his own noblest inspirations. Hmm. There's also a lot of different translations of the Divine Comedy. I actually just got an email the other day from Roman Rhodes Press. They're bringing out their own. Is there any particular translation that you favor? I am working on my own, but um, I have always used the Hollander uh, with my students. I, I think the Hollander stays very close to, to Dante and he also puts on the left side of the page the Italian, and so if you're if you're venturesome, if you know some Spanish, if you know some <laughs> some Latin, you can go over to the left side and try to figure out you know what word Dante was using in this particular instance. Um, I think the Esslin's a good one um, for those maybe for C.S. Lewis fans. Dorothy Sayers would um, would be exciting. What she does manage to do is preserve the terza rima, and so you can get a sense of the the ornamented musical magic of the original by means of Dorothy Sayers. But anytime you have something 
anytime you commit yourself in a rhyme poor language like English to try to do something that's easy in a rhyme rich language like Italian, you really, you know, <laughs> put yourself in a straitjacket and have to untie untie yourself over the course of time. But nevertheless, she does a fairly good job. So I would say um, any of those are kind of my go to translations um, until mine comes out and I get to use that one. Well, I'll make sure to put links in the show notes to all of those different translations. And when your translation is out, send me a message and I will go and update it appropriately. Yeah, sounds good. But one final question before we get on to the question of influence on Lewis. If somebody wants to start reading Dante, is the Divine Comedy the best place to start? Because people often start reading G.K. Chesterton and they go immediately for orthodoxy or the everlasting man, which I think is a terrible idea. <laughs> there, are, there are gentler ways to begin reading him. Is the same true in Dante or... It's your advice. Nope. Just, just go for his magnum opus. I'm afraid so. Yeah, I think it is the best place to start. I think, you know, I think there are some authors like, I don't know, like Dickens or something like that is Tale of Two Cities or Great Expectations as magnum opus. And it's not entirely obvious or with like Tolstoy, right? War and Peace or Anna Karenina. It's just not obvious in those situations. And Dante, it, it really, really is. Um, and so I think, I think the, the, the comedy is the place to go. The good news is that at least the first five Conti are really accessible and really interesting. And I think will surprise uh, your readers who are new to Dante with how psychologically astute they feel of this kind of incredible sense of being, of being lost in a wood in the middle of your life and having forgotten that ideal which had animated you on a daily basis. Um, Dante, I think, is a great, he's a great psychologist. And despite the strangeness and trappings of the medieval, I think you keep find keep finding his astute psychological observations of what it feels like from a point of view shot to try to live the spiritual life. But yes, the comedy is the place to go. Okay. I wanted to give everyone an opportunity to get out of doing this, but it sounds like that's not an option. <laughs> if your readers are just, you know, desperate and are great readers, then I think the Vita Nuova, the new life, is an interesting place to begin. This is a more youthful Dante, writing his, albeit strange, but medieval autobiography of his love of Beatrice, as well as why he became a poet. To read that, you know, over against the comedy, in which these youthful experiences of love turn into older experiences of insight into the morality of the heart, as well as the theological dimensions, could be an interesting background. Mm -hmm. Well, this podcast series isn't just about learning about important older writers, but specifically about their influence upon C.S. Lewis. So for the remaining time that we've got, how do you see Dante and the Divine Comedy in particular as influencing Lewis? Well, we know that it inf that Dante influenced Lewis massively. We know that for a series of years, he would get together with friends in various Oxford colleges and would read Conti together. We know that he was corresponding with Dorothy Sayers about her translation as she was bringing it out one book at a time. We know that he was reading uh, Paradiso when he was recovering from the war with Owen Barfield and would take strolls about the garden and talk about it, right? We know that in it, when he wanted to 
make recommendations to Sheldon Van Aken about how to deal with a sense of grief, he would start quoting Dante in Italian to him, right? So he's just, it seems like it was hard for Lewis to go an hour without accidentally <laughs> quoting a chunk of Dante. And in his scholarly books, he always goes back to Dante as the sort of the gold standard of what the medieval imagination could achieve. So, and then in his letters, he keeps admitting that he's borrowed, you know, this or that character. For example, in The Great Divorce, he he borrowed his bus driver from the, the surly angel in Inferno 9 from Dante. And his green lady is borrowed from Matilda in Purgatorio 28. So it's just, it's just absolutely, absolutely everywhere. Um, but I think the, the best place to go for your readers to see what he meant to Dante or sorry, what Dante meant to Lewis is Lewis's little essay in his medieval studies called um, The Simile in Dante or something like that, in which he just sat down with uh, pencil in hand and circled all of the similes, metaphors, and images used in the last 11 Conti of the comedy and came up with a sort of tabulation on it. And to Lewis's surprise, the closer he got to God, the farther he got up in heaven, the more earthy the similes that he used were. And this, I think, for Lewis was a huge deal. And if you remember some of the things that he says about the weight of glory, Lewis was so tired of sallow, pale, long-faced angels <laughs> on pre-Raphaelite stained glass windows, right? That he wanted something which made the heavenly, which made the holy feel dense and present and weighty. And thus he admired the fact that Dante, even while talking about these incredibly abstract things, was able to ground it in such earthy particulars in terms of crafts and clothing and biting and pulling and weightiness and heaviness. That's why, that's in some sense, I think, was Lewis's finest compliment to Dante, that you managed to make that which was most abstract, most ethereal, the invisible vision of God. And make it feel like it was dense and had a weight of glory. And you see all of this in spades in his own version of the Divine Comedy, which is the Great Divorce. That as they get closer to heaven, things get more real, not more ephemeral. Yeah, as well as this, I think this may be also influenced from Dante that evil is, although evil seems attractive to us, and although we have to regularly persuade ourselves out of, uh, you know, not cheating the IRS on my tax statement in order to save X number of dollars, right? Um, from a from a, a distance, Dante makes evil choices look self defeating and emptying. He makes it them look cold and lack of love. It's not that souls in in hell loved too much; it's that they loved too little. And I think that was that's something that. Lewis saves as the as the, the the big reveal at the end of Great Divorce, that it's hard to even find the pathetic little crack whence the whence the evil souls have issued. They're so small and tiny. I'm, how does how how is it said? One molecule of our world is larger and realer than the totality of hell. And I would say that that is always Lewis's strength. And from what you're saying, it sounds like he drew this from Dante to make the holy look attractive, not boring, and the evil look, for want of a better word, insane or just foolish uh, or utterly misguided rather That's than right. fun but banned by God because he always sends down a tablet saying, thou shalt not. Exactly. Yeah, empty, dissatisfying. 
self-defeating, sallow, sickly in the end. And Lewis thought that we moderns, under the great age of evil enchantment, particularly needed medieval literature to help correct our, our, our inherent tendencies toward not being able to imagine these invisible holy things as weighty and meaningful. Dr. Jason Baxter, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Before we wrap up, would you mind telling people where they can find out more about you, pick up your book on Dante, as well as your fantastic book on the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis, which gives a much more broad panoramic view of how the medieval world influenced Lewis? Yeah, absolutely. JasonMBaxter.com and JasonMBaxter.com. I have my website. I also have some of my books for sale, which I sell for the same price as uh, Jeff Bezos, except <laughs> I sign them um, and mail them to my readers and Jeff Bezos doesn't. And you also include some lecture notes. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I <laughs> I grab whatever random uh, sheets of, of paper my children haven't colored on yet. Um, and sometimes it's my own lectures. Sometimes it's the scholarly articles I'm reading and pack, package them up and send them out to send them out to readers. Um, I hoped actually to begin recording on Audible the Beginner's Guide to Comedy. I think I'm probably going to do it one canticle at a time. So depending on the release of this podcast, hopefully um, at least Inferno will be out and available for those who have busy schedules, but want to give Dante a crack. Maybe good 2023 preparation for your 2024 read-through. Absolutely. This is wonderful. Okay. When when that's ready, you shoot me a message. Uh, oh, Next year is looking easier and easier. I love it. <laughs> that's great. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And I'd also like to thank our audio editor, Taylor Schroll, all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Steve, Matt, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners every Tuesday, along with all of the prayer requests, which are on our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and start asking your friends whether or not they want to read through the Divine Comedy next year or maybe even sooner. But please join us again next time when we're moving from Dante to Shakespeare and we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.